home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. My name is Doug, and this week I am going to let Kermit the Frog introduce the topic. It's not easy being green. Okay, 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 okay. I know that what he's talking about is different than what I'm going to talk about, but the words at least apply. It isn't easy being green. All we hear is global warming this and climate change that. Our focus has to be on reducing our carbon footprint or else Miami is going to be underwater in 50 years. Weather is getting more extreme with floods and hurricanes. California is on fire and the polar bears are doomed. Some say it's already too late. Others say, climate change? What climate change? There's nothing to worry about. Of course, Some of the people that say climate change is a hoax are the same people who believe the earth is flat. Seriously, look it up if you don't believe me. The climate change issue is polarizing and it is being politicized to a ridiculous extreme. Whether or not you believe climate change is real, whether or not you believe it's man-made, And whether or not you believe we can slow, stop, or reverse the course that we are on, or are not on, can't we all just agree that clean air and clean water and trees and animals and nature are good things? And that our dependence on fossil fuels is not? Okay, I don't necessarily want to get bogged down in the politics of climate change, but unfortunately it's hard to avoid the politics. It's become a left-wing versus right-wing issue. Democrat versus Republican, conservative versus liberal. It shouldn't be that way, but it just is. So let me kind of give you an idea of where I stand. If you were to ask me 10 years ago, I would have told you that global warming was a hoax. I was firmly in that camp that believes that we don't have any effect on the climate. Now I'm leaning the other way. But uh, the truth is, I don't know. I'm on the fence. I don't know. I don't know if we have any control over this climate change stuff. And here's why. The climate change folks will tell you that the average temperature has increased. They will point to that famous hockey stick graph that shows a dramatic rise in the temperature since the Industrial Revolution. The deniers will point to that graph and say, yeah, it's exaggerated. In fact, I think there was uh, some sort of controversy a few years ago that indicated that those numbers might have been fudged. The deniers will point to some of the brutally cold winter weather that we've been experiencing, and they'll ask, where is your global warming now? The climate change folks will answer and say that climate change causes extreme weather, both hot and cold. In fact, 
while we've been battling record cold temperatures in the U.S. and Canada, down under in Australia where it's summer, they've been having record heat. The climate change folks will also point to the ferocity of the recent hurricane season to bolster their point. And then there's science. A majority of climate scientists, or at least we're told it's a majority, are adamant that climate change is happening, the temperature is rising, and they have the models to prove it, and they have the models to show just how devastating the effects are going to be. Another group of scientists say that their models show something different, that there really is no global warming that we all need to stop worrying. Now, a lot of those scientists, the climate change folks will tell us, are being funded by the oil companies. They're tainted by special interests. They're biased. The other scientists, why, they don't have an agenda. So they're the ones that should be believed. But here's the thing. Who is funding those scientists? I mean, if they're not studying climate change as a hobby, someone is paying them. And if you're being paid to study a problem, isn't it in your best interest to confirm that there is a problem to study? If they're being paid to study global warming, what are they going to do? Say that nothing's happening? Then what? Go back to growing mold spores in a Petri dish? I mean, they've got a pretty good gig right now. Both sides... Both sides have an agenda. But what about the increasing temperature argument? How valid is that? Surely you can't deny that the average temperature has been on the rise. Well, let's consider this. We've been hearing about these so-called record temperatures. And it's usually the record high for this day. Well, those daily records only go back... What, about 150 years or so? Here's a little history that you can look up on Wikipedia. The earliest development of the thermometer is usually credited to Hero of Alexandria, who lived from 10 to 70 AD, so uh, about 2,000 years ago. Galileo is generally credited as the inventor of the thermometer or the thermoscope along with other scientists in the 1500s and 1600s. The first reliable thermometers with standardized scales were developed by Daniel Fahrenheit in the 1700s. Um, Anders Celsius was also active around that same time. So really, the modern thermometer as we know it hasn't been around for more than 400-ish years. So let's put that in perspective, shall we? The Earth is believed to be 4 billion, that's billion with a B, years old. It is believed that the dinosaurs roamed the planet for 165 million years, up to 66 million years ago. We Homo sapiens have been around for about 200,000 years, and the first civilizations arose maybe 3,000 years ago. I can remember high school geography. We did these timelines for the Earth's history. We used cash register tape that rolled out pretty much the length of the entire classroom, probably about 30 feet. 
And we pathetic humans accounted for less than an inch, if I remember correctly. Expressed another way, if the Earth's history was expressed as a 24-hour day, humans have only been around for the last minute and 17 seconds. In other words, we ain't been around here that long. And remember, we've only been capable of recording temperatures for a few hundred years. Well, we know that the Earth has gone through cycles with ice ages. The current ice age, that's right, I said current, started about two and a half million years ago. The ice sheets, glaciers, advance and retreat on 40,000 to 100,000 year time scales. The last glacial period ended about 10,000 years ago, so really we're still coming out of that. The glaciers are still retreating. This stuff was happening before us. I can remember about 15 years ago or so, there was a 4,000-year-old ice sheet that broke off somewhere up in the Arctic or around Greenland or somewhere like that. And the global warming folk were jumping up and down, pointing to that as proof of global warming and that we needed to do something fast or else. But I'm sitting there thinking about the fact that the ice sheet was only 4,000 years old. So 4,001 years ago, it wasn't there. And then one summer, the ice didn't melt. 4,000 years isn't that long. In another story, this one from McLean's Magazine in 2014, Melting Yukon Ice reveals 5,000-year-old archaeological treasures. This is from that article. Climate change was eating away at the edges of mountain ice patches, revealing droppings left by caribou herds thousands of years ago, and tools lost by the hunters who once pursued them. Climate conditions on about two dozen Yukon mountains have proven to be almost uniquely suited to preserving organic material. Unlike glaciers that move, slowly grinding down any artifacts trapped in them, the Yukon ice patches tend to remain stable. Or at least they did, until gradual warming over the past several decades began to shrink them and reveal treasures. Among the finds, wooden darts as old as nearly 9,000 years, some complete with stone points, sinew bindings, and bits of feather and traces of ochre decoration. A finely carved barbed antler projectile point from about 1,200 years ago, and a size 4 moccasin, 1,400 years old, amazingly intact, and believed to be a boy's. So, before those ice patches were there, there were caribou and hunters there. And I could go on with other examples. Climate change is nothing new. We talk about it as if the earth is static, as if the earth took 4 billion years to get to this point and then said, "Eh, okay, I'm done. That's simply not the case. We are told that there was once a supercontinent, Pangaea, and through geological forces and plate tectonics, that continent split up and spread into the continents that we have today. Well, guess what? 
we're still moving. You want proof? Earthquakes. The earth is not static, and neither is its climate. So can we really expect a slow stop or reverse climate change when the climate is constantly changing? Well, what about hurricanes? The models tell us that we can expect more extreme weather phenomena as the oceans heat up and the ice caps melt. Uh, Yeah, that's probably true. The fact is, though, that we weren't really around to witness what happened last time this was happening. We have a larger population, so more people are going to be affected. We have the means to track hurricanes now that we did not have a hundred years ago. And can we even begin to guess how many hurricanes made landfall in North America a thousand years ago? So yeah, are we responsible for climate change? Will switching to LED bulbs and electric cars really make a difference? (laughs) It's hard to say. But the scientists are basically telling us that. We're past the tipping point, they say. It's too late, they say. So if we make all these changes and climate change happens anyway, it's our fault for not acting sooner. If climate change slows or reverses, then woohoo, we save the planet. But how will we know whether or not it's just a blip? All that said, solar power, good. Wind power, good. Wind turbines, maybe not so much. Electric cars, good. Conservation, good. Recycling, good. All of this stuff is good, whether or not it changes the weather. So why politicize this stuff? Why guilt us to the extreme that they're guilting us? Why accuse us of destroying the planet? Isn't isn't there a better way to get the message across? I grew up when the iconic Crying Indian commercial was popular, even though the Crying Indian was actually an Italian actor. A stereotypical Native American paddles his canoe through pristine waters until he comes to a harbor that's surrounded by factories and mills belching smoke. He then walks along a litter-strewn beach up to the edge of a freeway full of gas-guzzling cars. And trash tossed from a passing car lands at his feet, prompting the single tear. Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it. The message of this commercial put the power of change in our hands. It wasn't so much doom and gloom. It was not, if we don't change, we're going to destroy the earth. It was just simply, look, we've made a mess. Let's clean it up. Another commercial that was also running at the same time in the 1970s featured Woodsy Owl with a simple message for kids. Hi, I'm Woodsy Owl. In order to try and stop pollution, we need more help. So, help 
Ingenuity, spread the word. Come on, never be a dirty bird. No matter where you go, you can let some people know to give a hoot, don't pollute. Never be a dirty bird. In the city or in the woods, help keep America looking good. Now, litter is an aesthetic problem that's caused by laziness. But again, the message was that we have the ability to pick up after ourselves. That same campaign, if it was run today, would probably show some animal trapped or injured as the result of the litter. You know, like the plastic soft drink rings. There would be more finger wagging. Images of dancing owls have been replaced by images of drowning polar bears. Just saying. You know, if you tell us that we're destroying the planet, some people are going to get defensive and deny it. If you want my opinion, and really, why wouldn't you? My take on climate change is this. The climate is changing. It has always been changing, and it always will be changing. Global warming is happening, and there's probably nothing we can really do about it And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything. There ain't nothing wrong with being energy efficient, with having clean air to breathe and clean water to drink. There is nothing wrong with reducing our dependency on fossil fuels. These are all things we should want to do anyway. So, what does all this have to do with owning a home and doing home improvements? Well... We want our houses to be energy efficient. We want to build our houses with sustainable materials. We want to be green. These are all lofty goals. So let's dive in and talk a little bit about construction and renovation and the environment. Let's start with the basic construction of a house. The typical building envelope has insulated walls and attic. The attic is insulated just above the ceiling, The attic space itself is usually unconditioned. If it's properly ventilated, the attic will be the same temperature as outside. Common insulation is fiberglass or mineral wool bats in the walls, Um, fiberglass in the attic, bone and cellulose. In the past, there was vermiculite insulation, which often contained asbestos. Um, What you're looking for in insulation is the R value. Simply put, the higher the R value, the better the insulation. Common values are now around R20 for walls and about R50 for attics, depending on where you are. Of course, I'm saying that without looking up the minimum requirements in the building code. Anyway, insufficient insulation in the attic is easy to remedy by adding more insulation, either another layer of bats or more blown in but you still have this unconditioned space above the ceiling. Now, there's this relatively new trend in treating the attic as conditioned space, applying spray foam insulation directly to the roof rafters, and this way there isn't the concern that you have with your lighting and wiring, things that would normally cause penetrations in the building envelope, which is a common source of air leakage leading to energy loss. 
Plus, you have you, you, you no longer have to ventilate the attic space. The problem is that the powers that be are usually slow to catch on to new building technologies and tend to stick to the old tried and true. Spray foam insulation is also becoming more common for walls as well. But what if the walls are already finished? If there's no insulation, you can do what is referred to as a drill and fill, where holes are drilled at the top of the wall between the studs and the cavity is filled with loose fill cellulose insulation. But this sort of retrofit is impossible if there is already existing insulation. In that case, if you want to upgrade your insulation, you are going to have to do some demolition. The question is, is it worth it? What is the energy savings versus the carbon cost of sending drywall and plaster and old insulation to the landfill. There's also the obvious financial cost, but I'm focusing on the carbon footprint here. Now, here's the thing when it comes to insulation. Remember, at one time, asbestos was this wonder mineral. It insulated. It was fireproof. And we later found out that it causes health problems like mesothelioma. Fiberglass and mineral wool are believed to be safer, but you still don't want to be breathing in those fibers. Just because something is believed not to be carcinogenic doesn't mean that it won't cause health problems. So you've got to take precautions when you work with this insulation. And you also have to make sure that the bats are installed properly because any gaps will short circuit what you are trying to achieve. Where bats can be installed by do-it-yourselfers, spray foam should only be applied by trained professionals. There is a specific chemical reaction and if the mix isn't just right, the foam may not cure properly. There is significant amount of off-gassing that takes place while it cures, so there are health and environmental concerns here that, well, let's put it this way, the jury is still out. Just to clarify here, all of these insulation types are going to be safe as long as they're not disturbed, but there is reason for concern during installation, demolition, and disposal. The energy savings are only part of the equation. Another way to save on energy costs is to upgrade your windows, according to window companies. Actually, it is true. Replacing old drafty windows with low-E, argon-filled windows will save energy, but not all windows are created equal. Once the seal fails, the argon is gone, and so is the insulation value. Plus, a window is only as good as its installation. And when you want to replace windows, you have to consider the materials and manufacturing process for the new windows, and the fact that the old windows are most likely going to end up in the landfill. Now, let's move on to the mechanicals and appliances. The biggest draws on your electricity are the air conditioner, dryer, and refrigerator. 
Newer appliances, newer mechanicals, usually means more energy efficient. You want to look for the uh, Energy Star label. Nudging up your thermostat will help you save on the air conditioning. Using a programmable thermostat will also help by keeping the house cooler during the times that you are home and using less energy while you are away. Keeping your house at a constant 68 degrees is not only wasteful, but on days when the temperature is over 90 degrees, trying to maintain a 30 degree temperature differential between you inside and outside means that your air conditioner will be working constantly. The size of the air conditioner matters too. If your space calls for a two-ton air conditioner and you have a three-ton, then you risk the air conditioner short cycling because it doesn't have to run as long to lower the temperature. Now, that may sound like a good thing, but by not running as long, it will not remove as much of the humidity out of the air and that will affect your comfort. Nobody likes feeling cold and clammy. Plus, the constant starting and stopping will shorten the life of your unit. Your electric clothes dryer is a power hog. You want a washing machine that spins as much of the water out of your clothes as possible so the dryer doesn't need to run as long. That means making sure your washing machine is properly leveled so the water can drain properly. Of course, the alternative to using a dryer is to go old school and hang your clothes out to dry. But the clothesline, it just isn't an option in the winter. And in the spring, you've got a lot of pollen in the air. And in the fall, there's all sorts of leaves and other crap blowing around. Plus, there is always the risk that birds will use your skivvies for target practice, if you know what I mean. But that's just my opinion. Drying clothes outdoors, naturally, saves a lot of energy. The fridge is the heart of the home. It also uses a lot of electricity. A fridge and freezer that are well-stocked are going to be more efficient than if they were empty. That's because the stuff inside, once it's chilled or frozen, will help keep things cool. Another thing to think about is the size of the fridge. A 22 cubic foot side-by-side is going to require more energy to operate than a more practically sized 18 cubic foot. Having the biggest and best will cost you and the environment. If it's more than what your family needs. Now, let's move on to heating. Whether heating the air, heating the water, or heating our food. Now, in Canada and the U.S., I I, I can't really speak for Mexico because I don't know, but in Canada and the U.S., we are unique in that we like to have a huge tank of water that we keep hot 24-7. We are starting to transition to on-demand tankless water heaters that have been in use in other countries for many many years, but a lot of us still have hot water tanks. Now, with tanks, I have heard that electric is actually more efficient than gas, but gas is cheaper to operate because of the fuel cost. 
If you have an electric tank, you can use a timer to only heat the water at those times of day that you will actually use it. The water will stay warm for a long period of time, so it's not like you're trying to heat a tank of cold water when the time comes. Insulating tank covers also help. Now, if you don't have natural gas, a tankless heater may not be the best choice. An electric unit is a beast that draws a lot of juice, and you may have to upgrade your service to handle it. Gas, though? No problem. Just be aware that it does use a lot of fuel when it's heating the water. But water is only heated when it's needed. Not when nobody's home, not when you're on vacation. And that's a good thing. But in the realm of unintended consequences, are you more likely to spend more time taking a hot shower when there isn't the risk of running out of hot water? If that's the case, are you really being more energy efficient? Or is this going to fall in the category of luxury? I'm not going to spend too much time talking about ranges. Gas is usually seen as more efficient than electric because gas heats faster. But now we have induction tops which are becoming more common and they combine speed with less energy loss so they are now seen as more efficient. Double ovens have a couple positive points. They give you the ability to cook foods at different temperatures. I guess that would fall in the luxury category. But if you only need one oven, you are heating up a smaller cubic footage, which means you're going to use less energy. There are a number of options for heating your house. Electric baseboard, forced air gas, heat pump, boiler. Going into detail on each of these would make your head swim. So, um, yeah. Not going to do that. Besides, what is popular is determined usually by what area of the country that you're in. So here's a basic overview. Natural gas, if you have it, is cheap. Electric is expensive to operate. Water holds heat longer than air, making hot water heat attractive. That would be your boiler system. Hot water is also used for in-floor heating, which I got to tell you is wonderful. Flooring retains the heat, hot air rises, so starting at the floor makes sense, and you feel warmer when your tootsies are warm. We had in-floor heating in the money pit, and it's one of the things that I miss the most. All that said, hydronic or hot water heating systems are expensive to install. A geothermal system extracts heat from the ground. The system can be expensive, but operating costs are low. Now, without getting bogged down in the details about how each system operates, let's just look at how you can save energy regardless of which system you have. Maintenance is key to keeping your system operating at its peak efficiency. That includes regular filter changes if applicable, and annual cleaning and inspection by a technician. Multiple zones allow you to heat the area of the house that you're using while reducing heat 
to the areas that are not being used. Programmable thermostats let you reduce the temperature at the times of day that you are not home. And remember, sweaters are cheaper than gas. Wearing an extra layer of clothing keeps you comfortable in a cooler house. We actually keep our house at a constant temperature because there is always someone home at any given time. Uh, We keep the temperature at about 68 degrees, which is still warmer than I'd like it. But I've been in houses where the temperature is set at 72, traditional room temperature, and I find that stifling. When it comes to power consumption, a lot of our electronics are vampires. That is, they are drawing electricity even when they're off. TVs and phone chargers are just a couple of the culprits. And while electricity may be clean energy for the end user, the production may be anything but. Sure, we are transitioning to sustainable energy sources like solar and wind, but your local power plant may be powered by natural gas or nuclear or, if these plants are still around, coal. So that Nissan Leaf that you're driving may actually be a coal-powered car. Finally, let's talk about lighting. The old incandescent light has pretty much gone the way of the dodo. For a while, it looked like fluorescent was going to become the dominant technology, but now it's LED that has taken over. Fluorescents were supposed to last up to 10 years, and they say LEDs can last 20 years. But here's the deal. Fluorescent lights contain mercury. It may be a small amount, but environmentally, mercury is nasty stuff. LEDs contain electronics, which also require specialized recycling and disposal at the end of their life. And some bulbs just aren't living up to their advertised life expectancy. Even worse, there are these new LED fixtures that are completely integrated, so there's no bulbs to replace, which sounds convenient, but that means that the whole light fixture is going to need to be replaced at the end of its life. Kind of defeats the whole environmentally friendly thing if we're just making everything disposable. Disposal is an issue, especially when we renovate. Upgrading your kitchen cabinets? Where are the old ones going to end up? Removing a wall to open a space up? What's going to happen to the old drywall or plaster? Gypsum can be recycled if you can find a facility that does it. Otherwise, it just ends up in the landfill. Old cabinets can be reused for storage in a shed or a garage. Otherwise, wood and hardware can be salvaged. With stuff like that, check with uh, the Habitat Restore in your area. The point is, not everything needs to end up in the landfill. Asphalt shingles can also be recycled and reused for paving roads, but often these just end up in the landfill as well because the facilities to recycle them are few and far between. One sure way to reduce waste is to use high-quality products. Using 30-year shingles as opposed to 15-year shingles can arguably cut the amount of waste in half, although 30-year shingles do tend to be thicker and therefore there's more material. Metal roofs are seriously gaining in popularity. 
These roofs can last anywhere from 50 to 100 years. There's more investment up front for a metal roof, but consider that you're not going to have to replace it. And at the end of its life, it is recyclable. Probably the most exciting development is the new Tesla solar roofing tile. These look like shingles and are supposedly stronger than slate or tile roofs. But they are made of glass and capture solar energy that can be converted to electricity. And they look a whole lot nicer than traditional solar panels. But they are new. Just how durable they are in real-world applications remains to be seen. But you have to love the concept. Your house can generate the power that it needs from the sun, and in some cases you might even be able to sell surplus power back to the grid. Ah yes, the grid. This is where things get tricky. Your local utility company, your local building department, they probably aren't going to just let you disconnect from the grid and become completely self-sufficient. At least not yet. In Ontario, we had incentives to install solar panels on our houses. The electricity, though, wasn't for our own use. It was purchased at a guaranteed price to supply the grid. The problem is that to incentivize this move to green energy, the guaranteed price was higher than the market price. This was good for the homeowner who signed up for the scheme, But overall, it led to higher prices for electricity in Ontario. And that's probably a big part of the reason why our electricity prices are the highest in the country. In fact, there were instances where producers were actually paid not to produce. They were paid not to produce when there was a surplus. It is a mess And it's an example of what can happen when government schemes are not well thought out. Oh yeah, and that price is only guaranteed for 20 years. So after 20 years, what's going to happen? I mean, what's the life expectancy of the solar panel? What's going to be involved with the grid? What's going to be involved with supplying our own personal houses? What about the manufacture and disposal of the actual solar panels themselves. One last example. This is kind of a funny story. Um, I was looking for flooring for the second floor of the money pit, and I wanted to be environmentally friendly. I figured cutting down trees is bad, so I skipped over the usual hardwood floor. I looked at cork which is a green renewable resource that is harvested from trees without hurting them. But cork is not particularly durable. I finally settled on bamboo. Bamboo is as hard as hardwood, but it's a grass. It grows fast, and it's definitely renewable, so I figured it would be a good choice. But then my order came in, and I noticed that it was manufactured in China. Well, of course it was. Where does bamboo grow? A lot of it grows in China. So this green, renewable plant was manufactured into flooring planks in a country with a dubious environmental record. And then it was loaded onto ships where it traveled across the ocean to the other side of the world. 
seems like there might just be a bit of an offset here. Meanwhile, there is hardwood flooring that is manufactured in the United States that is sourced from managed forests. So maybe that was the greener choice after all. So basically, there are many ways to be green. It's not all black and white. You have to look at the whole picture. Any building product you choose is going to have manufacturing and distribution that has to be factored into the equation. You're also going to have to consider the end of life. What effect will its disposal have on the environment? Being green and energy efficient is good, but it ain't easy being green because you may not be even if you think you are. Well, folks, that's going to do it for this episode of the Thumb and Hammer podcast. The website is thumbandhammer.com. This is episode number 26. You can find me on the Twitter at Thumb and Hammer. And you can help me out by telling a friend about this podcast. I would appreciate that. I also appreciate that you spent part of your day with me. Thank you. I will be back in a couple weeks. Until then, cheers.